0: Right, if you could turn Luke chapter 15. We started last week and did the parable of the lost sheep. Today we're going to focus on the lost coin. Uh, but as we read, I want to put it back within the context that we see there in verses 1 and 2, lest we uh, forget about that. So, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. After the parable of the lost sheep, he says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house? And seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you work through means. And that sometimes you work above and beyond those means, and I ask that you would do this even this morning, so that Christ would speak to his people through the power of the Holy Spirit, Uh, that my uh, physical limitations uh, would not present an issue, but rather your message would ring clearly and connect with the hearts of your people, that you would be at work Bringing good in their lives, that you would be at work changing and transforming, that you would be at work converting and sanctifying. We ask this in Christ's name, Amen. In many ways, uh, in groups and out groups, are a function of our fallen human nature, and uh, it's easy to understand this. For instance, at least when I was in elementary school. We all sat with our class. But you know, something marvelous happened when we went to middle school, and that is we got to sit where we wanted at lunch. Now there's a blessing and there's a curse. Because if your friend happens to be having lunch at the same time, then you can sit with your friends. But there were times when my friends weren't having lunch at the same time I was. And, you know, sitting at the lunch table involves a whole lot more than just sitting at a lunch table. You have to be the right person to sit at that table. It's a measure of being in or out of any particular group. You can't just sit down. And sadly, we continue this into adulthood, it seems, at times. We talked a little bit about this in our men's ministry the other night, and and sometimes we can use various status symbols in our culture to communicate who is in or who is acceptable and who is out or not acceptable. Sometimes it goes bigger than just who the cool kids are and who the jocks are and who the nerdy brainiacs are. Sometimes it's about the color of your skin. Last week we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day because there was a time in this country where you couldn't go places because of the color of your skin. That's important because that is part of what is informing this particular parable, Uh, this This conflict that is going on between Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes is connected to this idea of who is in and who is out. Who is welcome and accepted and who is rejected and not accepted. And so we're going to see here that Jesus enters into dishonor so that we can experience acceptedness. On the behalf of God. So our big idea this morning is that Jesus bore disgrace to bring us joy forever. Let's start with the fact that Jesus values people that the world devalues. Sometimes, let me say this again, because sometimes we kind of forget this whole thing. That Jesus values people that the world Devalues. So the the Pharisees and the scribes here in in verse 2, you see, they're the legalists. They're the ones who are trying to decide who's in and who's out. They're playing, in a sense, God. And they're grumbling because Jesus has received sinners and eats with them. When was the last time you got exercised over whom ate with whom? Besides middle school. Right, but as we had some cross-cultural training a couple of years ago, Mike Alameda uh, was here and he was teaching us. And one of the things that I've I've kind of hung on to from what he said to us was: if a person in a Hispanic community invites you to a family event, it means you're in. It means they accept you. They're bringing you into in a sense they're holy of holies. Okay, and therefore. Don't dismiss it, but receive it as a token of friendship, a token of acceptance. When Jesus was having dinner with these people, it was this token of acceptance which angered the Pharisees and the scribes so much because Jesus was accepting the people that in their view were unacceptable. Tax collectors. And sinners. They feared contamination from these less than desirable individuals. They also feared, I imagine, the opinion of others if they should be found in the presence of, you know, of others. The, the, the telephone game would start. Did you realize that Matthew had lunch with Phil, the sinner? This is what would happen. And when you live in an in a honor culture like like they did, and similar to Asian cultures, that is everything. We kind of dismiss this, but imagine, you know, letting the wrong kid sit with you at lunch in middle school. Hmm. If you've forgotten what that's like, maybe when Wonder comes out on DVD, give it a watch. Now, we should separate from some sinners. We read from that in first Corinthians chapter five, and, and Paul builds upon this this idea here because what Paul says years later is, "I told you to not have fellowship with sinners, but what I meant by that was not those who are in the world because you can 't escape them and in fact, he would say later on in the next letter, you should be trying to win them." The people he was worried about that would contaminate you and corrupt you were were the people who claimed to be like you but were still caught in their sin. So, what Jesus has in mind as expressed in Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 is very different than what we see the Pharisees and the scribes having in mind as expressed here in Luke 15, verse 2. I want us to recall... That we were all dead in sins and trespasses too. We were not brought into this salvation. We were not chosen because we're awesome. I know you're awesome. But that's not why you were chosen. We were chosen, as Paul says, before the foundation of the world. We were chosen in Christ not because we were holy and blameless for, before Him, but that so that we could become holy and blameless before Him. And so the awesomeness comes after, not before, in God's economy. We see as well in First Corinthians uh, Corinthians, Colossians chapter three, in the midst of Paul's call to sanctification, he says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. We forget that covetousness one a lot. Okay, we're focused on those other things. Covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. But here's the here's what I want to focus on. In these things you too once walked while you were living in them. Let us not forget from once we have come. Even if you were converted as a child, you still were a sinner. If you were someone like me who was converted a little bit older, you were really a sinner. But still a sinner. We walked in those things. We needed the work of Christ to remove us from those things. And that is what Jesus is doing as he has dinner with these sinners. And so, because of what the Pharisees and the scribes are saying and the the grumbling against Jesus at this point, he tells the parables of the lost sheep and the one we're focusing on today, a lost coin, because the sheep and the coin have great value to the shepherd and the woman. You see, the shepherd left the other 99 and as we said before, he he most likely left them with some under shepherds so he didn't abandon them to to the wolves, but he goes to find the missing sheep. And so he begins to cross the countryside, you know, looking where he once was and everywhere around it, trying to find this lost sheep, this one of a hundred that seems to be so important to him. And he tells now about this woman who has 10 coins and loses one. Now the proportion has increased. Now, see, the value is the same because a sheep cost one drachma, one coin. But instead of there being 100 sheep, there's only 10 drachmas. And so to her, this was more valuable, and and she still searches it says that she searches diligently. And in that day and place, most homes, well, there was no glass. There were no windows. Maybe you had a slit that served as a window so you could look outside and see what's going on there. But you wanted to make sure that it wasn't big enough, big enough so that someone could get in. That's why they didn't have windows. They didn't want people getting in. That didn't belong in. And so in order to clean her house, she needs to light the lamp. And she gets out the broom, and she's looking everywhere diligently in order that she might find this coin, because this is 10% of her wealth. This coin matters to her. So we see, or we should see, that sinners, though not valuable to the Pharisees and the scribes, sinners were incredibly valuable to Jesus. They weren't worth the time of day to the Pharisees and scribes, but they were worth Jesus' exhaustive effort. Have you ever lost anything important? I remember when we lived in Florida. Amy lost the engagement ring. You might imagine we were a little concerned. (laughs) Not because... We're not married if she loses the ring. But that was valuable to us emotionally as or sentimentally as well as financially. It was the ring she picked out. So it wasn't one, don't worry, it wasn't one of these things If I hate this ring, maybe I'll lose it and Steve will buy me when I like. It was, uh, you know, she loved this ring because she picked it out, not me. And so we searched diligently, prayerfully, Found it. While we were on vacation in New York the other this couple weeks ago, we realized that our our neighbor who was uh, had access to our house couldn't find the van key. That's kind of important if they're going to drop off the van at our house. I mean, sorry, at the at the airport since we were getting in in the middle of the night and we didn't want to uh, have someone pick us up. Can't get the van there. Where is it? We couldn't search ourselves, and so we're, we're pleading with our neighbor, search our house, up and down. How often do you send your neighbor into your bedroom, okay? Because I was home alone. That's lesson number one. Steve should never be home alone. <laughs> and I was in a rush to get my honeydew list done before I caught my flight first thing in the morning, and I couldn't remember what I did with that silly key. I thought I put it on the hook. I could have sworn I stuck it on the hook. Instead, I stuck it with the other key in my briefcase. Hey, that's not too bad. We, didn't, we weren't out any money aside from shipping it to our friends in time so that they could drop off the van. It, was, it all worked out fine. But we searched diligently because it was valuable to us. It was important to us. The van didn't disappear, but it was very important that the van be at the parking lot of the airport at 1230 in the morning to wait for us. Actually, it was worse than that because of a delay, but uh, that's not here. Sinners are valuable to Jesus. You see, Jesus was not accidental. Jesus was not kind of haphazard. Jesus was not lackadaisical and unintentional about seeking for sinners. But we see Him engaged in this process because they are value to Him. The outcrowd, in this instance, is those tax collectors and sinners. But it wasn't just that they were sin uh, sinful. We also see the reality of the fact that they were marginalized members of their community. And sometimes we forget about that. And I think that's part of the difference between the sheep being lost, the sheep which strayed, and the coin being lost. Coins don't lose themselves. They're like car keys. They're only where you put them or someone moves them. Or you might accidentally drop them. So I think there's something to be said here uh, for the reality of uh, sometimes our lostness includes the reality of our fallenness in Adam. It could be Disability. So disabled people are often marginalized within our society, but I would say Jesus cares for them. The unborn are marginalized in our society, but I think Jesus cares for them. There are others that are marginalized within our society. We talked about the poor and our call to worship, and Jesus does indeed care for them. They're not marginalized in His economy. Jesus is concerned about our plight as well as their plight. This will connect. But I wanted my kids to understand the fawns. Right? And so I went on YouTube and I found this, you know, best moments of the fawns. Which makes no sense. How was he so cool? I didn't get any of it. But you know, he was cool. And so I show them this video of the best moments of the Fawns. And it was interesting because in the last scene that they showed from Happy Days, they were in a different diner. They weren't in Arnold's Diner. And on the wall at the entrance, you could see a sign. Now remember, this is Milwaukee 1950s whites only. And as the Fonz walks out, he slams the wall, the sign falls. Fonz didn't like the sign, apparently. That's the implied message of this. I'm also someone who likes martial arts movies and There's a scene. uh, I was discussing this with Jaden because we were watching Ip Man and and the the abuse that the Chinese suffered at the hands of the Japanese uh, during World War II has profoundly shaped their culture. And in many martial arts films, the Japanese are the evil ones. Okay. And in uh, Bruce Lee's Chinese Connection, he wants to go into a park, and this is during the Japanese occupation. And there's a sign: No dogs no Chinese and so doing what only Bruce Lee can do he leaps into the air kicks it and shatters it to pieces we see the fawns, and Bruce Lee can't really undo the marginalization of other people but Jesus calls these marginalized people part of his treasured possession. That's a phrase that we get from Deuteronomy seven and as well as Deuteronomy fourteen. Despite these people's sins, despite their weakness, despite their warts. The events that Mike read from Second Samuel chapter nine regarding David and Meshivapheth are a glorious picture of the gospel. Because here you have the marginalized man, the cripple, Meshivopheth. Not only that, the house of Saul. While Jonathan was the dear friend of David, the house of Saul had tried to kill David. And so I'm sure that when Mephibosheth is called into David's presence now that he is king, he was probably quaking in his boots shaking in his robe because he was afraid that the wrath of David would fall upon his head. And instead, he experiences the tenderness of David as a picture of the tenderness of God. That this crippled man who, whose grandfather tried to kill David on so many occasions and hunted him down, this crippled man was now brought into his home and ate as his table and was treated like a son of David. That's more than busting up a sign or knocking a sign off the wall. And that's what we see Jesus doing as He eats with the tax collectors and the sinners. David's kindness towards Mephibosheth is a a type or a, a foreshadowing of the gospel that was to come. so Jesus places a high value on people that the world tends to place with low value. Secondly, Jesus willingly bears dishonor to save the lost. Not only does He value these marginalized, devalued people, but He bears dishonor Himself to save the lost. Bruce Lee and the Fonz try to save people from their honor. Jesus joins the dishonor. That's the important thing. How did he search for sinners? This is the wonder of Christ's humiliation. The reality of the incarnation. That Jesus became a man. That Jesus didn't become a king. Jesus became the son of a poor, par- a poor carpenter in backwoods Galilee. He dwelt among sinners. He humbled himself in doing this. And so he comes not like a celebrity with a paparazzi in tow, but he comes in humility as one of the marginalized in the Roman Empire. But not only that, as he tells these parables, he is meant to be represented by the shepherd and the woman. Shepherds were considered riffraff of that day. They were considered to be untrustworthy because many of them were thieves taking what they found along the way from your property. Women as well were marginalized. They were second-class citizens within that culture. They couldn't testify at a trial. Their word could not be trusted, not because they weren't trustworthy, but because of the prejudice of the day. And so Jesus puts himself in these parables in the guise of the marginalized. But the marginalized who were responsible and faithful to God in the midst of this. Last week I mentioned Babette's feast. And one of the the amazing and interesting things about Babette's feast is how she is, in a sense, a picture of Christ. Because in France... She was a woman of respect, a woman of honor, a woman of dignity. She was a well-known chef in a famous restaurant in Paris. She could have almost anything that she wanted. And here she is in Denmark as a nobody, as a nothing, who is taught to cook the most mean, horrible food for the widows. All along probably thinking, I can do better than this. And yet humbling herself to the instruction of the two daughters of the movement's founder. And yet, she is the one who ultimately brings joy through that humiliation. Because when she wins the lottery, she doesn't go back to France. She doesn't buy herself a big house and all that stuff. She enriches others and remains in her humiliation. But we see that the marginalized people of the parables are more responsible than the Pharisees and the scribes. But we see even better that picture of Jesus, who though being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so his... His um, incarnation is, is part of His humiliation, but then He then goes deeper with the reality of His atonement, His death upon the cross, cast outside of the city like worthless refuge, humbled Himself unto death on the cross, the death of execution. He's lumped together with slaves and criminals, stripped naked and abused. Just like the tax collectors and sinners, Jesus was rejected by men. But here's the thing. He was considered precious by God. 1 Peter 2, Peter makes that clear to us. As you come to Him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And so while he, he bore dishonor, and that dishonor meant rejection, included rejection on behalf of the people on the inside, the ultimate insider, God the Father Himself, was pleased with it. Delighted in it and considered Him precious. Jesus willingly bore dishonor in His incarnation and His atonement and seeking to the lost to save. It's good news. And so we think of things like Hebrews chapter 12. We're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. He thought little of the shame. He thought nothing of the shame. He experienced it, but he, it didn't affect Him. Like, I can't believe that shame. I can't bear that shame. But rather, He embraced it. So that he might glorify others. So, incarnation, atonement. There's also the reality of God's providence in that he sends previously converted people to meet sinners, to have dinner with them, so to speak to make known to them the gospel message that God loves people and calls them to repentance and faith. This week I was reading that book I mentioned last Sunday on church history. I was reading about Justin Martyr, who was one of the great apologists of the early church. And do you know how he got saved? He was walking on the beach in Asia Minor. And an old man came up to him. A man he did not know. So here it is. It's a chance meeting along the beach. And they begin to discuss the meaning of life. And this old man shares the gospel of Jesus Christ with this guy named Justin. And he's born again. And he becomes one of the great apologists of the church a seemingly incidental, a seemingly random event that actually was within the providence of God for the salvation of Justin Martyr, for the future work of Justin Martyr. And so God utilizes means to the ends. He sends people today just like He sent that old man to talk to Justin Martyr. Who led you to faith? Even if it's your parents. Think that. God placed you in that home with those people who had a passion for Jesus Christ and shared that Gospel message with you. I didn't have that. God had to use other means. But God did use means. And you might be the means by which he calls others to faith and <coughs> repentance. He who was glorious bore dishonor to make the dishonorable glorious. That's a little summary of the gospel right there. He who was glorious bore dishonor. To make the dishonorable glorious. Thirdly, join heaven in rejoicing over repentance. You see, the punchline to this parable is nearly identical to the previous parable. The, the shepherd is excited and, and invites his friends and neighbors to rejoice with him, and so the woman, when she finds the coin, invites her neighbors, come on and, and friends, come on, rejoice with me. And both of these are meant to point to and explicitly do point to the heavenly joy because the first parable talks about there is more joy in heaven and the second one there is more joy in the in the angels of among the angels of God heavenly joy over the repentance of sinners. We might yawn but up in heaven they're rejoicing when sinners repent. Now I want us to consider The fact that repentance is not simply choosing Christ but rather cherishing Christ as more valuable to us than our sins and our idols. Why would I say that? Well, if you go to Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 87. What is repentance unto life? We see repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. And so there's a there's a turning away from sin which now this person hates and which grieves them to God. And so the, there's a... The turning from sin, there's a turning to God. But you turn to God because it says there's an apprehension or an awareness of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. And so repentance doesn't happen within a vacuum. It's a turning away from sin because now you see it as ugly and unsatisfying. And now you see Jesus as fully satisfying, increasingly satisfying. And so as we talked about last week, the the tax collectors are turning away from their greed and turning toward Jesus for their satisfaction. We see this uh, uh, in the life of Levi in particular, because what did Levi do? He gave back the money that he had taken inappropriately. That That was a fruit of his repentance, because he was saying, Jesus is more important I cherish Jesus more than this wealth I accumulated. That was the reason why I strayed from God in the first place. And so we see similarly, these sinners, you know we don't know what their sins were, but they were probably seeking pleasure or they're seeking power. Who knows? But that became less important to them than the kingdom of God because of what they realized through Jesus. And so, people will not repent unless they see Jesus as better than what they're chasing right now. And so, part of our call is to to paint a picture for them of the greatness of Jesus. So, these sinners seek their satisfaction and joy in Christ rather than in pleasure and in power. And so part of what this means is that we ought to have an expectation of joy in this life and an unbridled, unending joy in eternity. Pertaining to this life, we have places like Romans 15. A little benediction. I love this benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That's for this life. You need joy and peace in this life. You need hope in this life. And so what Paul is talking about is for this life, this joy. Jesus comes for our joy in this life. But it also comes for our eternal joy. Jesus views heaven in these parables as a noisy, happy, and holy place. It is not some place that is somber and solemn. There'll be no shh in heaven. Okay? It's not the library. The only time there is silence in heaven and revelation is when God is about to do something amazing and everyone is spellbound. Not because heaven is a horribly boring place. We, I think, fundamentally misunderstand heaven if we don't recognize it as a place of holiness and happiness far greater than you can bear in your present state. And so our earthly worship should reflect some of this joy. There is to be lament. Almost 70% of the the Psalms are lament. So there's a place for lament in our worship. But there's also intended to be a place for joy in our worship because we are sinners who have come home. This means that there's joy to be had in God. Let's not believe the lie of the serpent in the, in the Garden of Eden, that he is stingy, that he is withholding, that he is critical, that there is something that is desirable that he's not gonna let you have. That was the lie. And whether you're a legalist or you're, you know, not a legalist, a licentious person, a big sinner, that's the lie that you believe that drives your system, that God is not good. And Jesus reminds us that He is. And He invites us into the goodness. The Gospel reveals a tender-hearted, big-hearted, joyful God who wants to share His joy with people. A little earlier in Luke 12, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock. Sounds almost like David before Mephibosheth. Fear not. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus is not twisting the Father's arm The father delights, takes joy in, giving his kingdom to people. He's not reluctant. If I have to. Sometimes I'm a reluctant dad. Because you know what? I'm a wretched sinner and I've got my own little agenda. And sometimes I just want to be left alone. And so there are times when I'm reluctantly good to my children. My heavenly Father is never that way. Reluctantly good. It pleases Him. It makes His day, so to speak, to give the, ping, the kingdom to people. Not because they deserve it, but despite the fact that they don't deserve it. And so... As we think about evangelism in the coming months, what we're doing is we're inviting people to leave sin and inviting them to a far greater sustained joy than the one which their sin offers. We're painting a realistic picture of the gospel. that there is great joy to be had in God. No, you won't be over-bubbling with joy every moment of the day. You won't be sort of like someone on drugs. (laughs) But there will be a profound sense of joy in that you have a treasure no one can take away from you. That you have a father who's never going to leave you that you have a brother who's not going to keep trying to get away from you because you're too young. And he wants to do older kid stuff. You're not going to be turned away at the table where the rest of the children are laughing because we're all at the same table. And we'll all be laughing together. That's a great gospel. So which kind of comes first? The chicken or the egg? Yeah, chicken. Ah, you ruined it. Sometimes it doesn't matter which comes first. And in the case of marginalized people, I don't think it matters with outsiders. Sometimes they're outsiders because they're sinners. Uh, sometimes they're sinners because they're outsiders and they're trying to deal with the pain. Okay? I'm not denying the reality of depravity there. I'm just talking about its fruit. They're forgotten and neglected by the in crowd except when they're made fun of by the in crowd. But what we see here is a Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost by joining them in their status as outsider, by joining in their status as marginalized in the reality of His humiliation. We see a Jesus who treasures them enough to lay down His life for their joy as well as His own. And so we make... A call to repentance, a turning from their sin, their ill-gotten pleasure, a turning toward God for the restoration of joy in God. A restoration to jo- of joy to heaven and to sinners. And so let us join with Jesus who first joined with us and in inviting others to share in His joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for such a great Jesus. Not a celebrity Jesus who wants us to fawn over Him because He's so great. But a Jesus who joined us in our humiliation. A Jesus who bore our sin. A Jesus who lifts us up that we might share in His glory. Help our hearts to be captivated by that. Work by the Spirit so that that gets deeper and deeper within our hearts so that it really is what drives us. And that we would be less driven by our our desire to create a righteousness of our own. Or our desire to seek our life in sin and its fleeting pleasures. And this is something only you can do. And so we ask it of you. In Christ's name, amen.